You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 17. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, and I am coming to you as always from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. Well, this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast was a real special treat for me. I had the opportunity to interview someone that I respected before I had on the podcast, but after having a chance to speak with him, and to interact with him, and to get to know him at a far more personal level, as all of you will, um, that respect has just grown astronomically. Ravi Jain is an immigration lawyer that practices in Toronto, Ontario, with the law firm of Green and Spiegel. And we had a chance to discuss, among other things, uh, the ins and outs of spousal sponsorship. So that's really what he brought to the table, is his experience, his insight, and it is totally worth it. But aside from all of that, it was so cool to see and get to know uh, an immigration lawyer who truly puts his clients ahead of anything else. An individual who cares about what he does and takes great satisfaction making the world a better place for the clients that he represents. And uh, it was something that I was, it really moved me, I'll be honest. And it inspired me to just be that much better And I know all of you who listen to this podcast will get the same feeling that I had about Ravi. So without further ado, let's jump into my interview with Canadian immigration lawyer, Ravi Jain. Well, I am very fortunate today to have Ravi Jain with me uh, to share some insight on an area that I think both of us uh, have our hearts in a little bit, and that's the spousal sponsorship realm. How are you doing, Ravi? Just fine. Thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, I'm going to take a few minutes and just give a little bit of background on on Ravi here. Um, I could honestly do probably a podcast itself just on everything that that Ravi has done and his accomplishments. And but I'll I'll, I'll save uh, I'll save Ravi from <laughs> endurance. <Embarrassment. enduring> <laughs> Um, Ravi's an immigration lawyer practicing in Toronto with the law firm of Green and Spiegel, and he's a partner with the firm. He is among a small percentage of immigration lawyers who are certified by the Law Society of Upper Canada as specialists in citizenship and immigration law. He has also addressed the Canadian Senate as an expert witness on immigration law and appeared before the Senate Standing Committee on Human Rights. And this next one, I'm going to have to get Ravi to elaborate a little bit on. In November, uh, actually November 27th, 2012, Ravi was presented the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal by command of Her Majesty the Queen in commemoration of the 60th anniversary of Her Majesty's accession to the throne and in recognition of Ravi's significant contributions to Canada. Now, uh, anecdotally, I know, you know you've been involved in just a ton of things, but how did this happen? Well, I'm pretty sure it's not the queen herself sort of sitting there going, well, <laughs> this guy in Canada, he's really done a lot with immigration law. No, um, it's what happens is uh, senators or um, in my case, it was a senator, I think, um, or, um, you know, other politicians, um, cabinet members, whatever, can um, can put your name forward if they know of some of the activities you've been doing. So uh, I actually don't know who nominated me. It's not... Um, it's not something that they uh, disclose. So um, it's a bit like the Order of Canada. My father actually was um, a recipient of that. And I know people always asked him, how did you get the nation's sort of highest honor? And uh, he was an academic and he, um, you know, he didn't know. I mean, he, you know, uh, he knew, I know that there's some Supreme, Court, Supreme Court judges that nominate him, but I don't know beyond that, um, you know, who actually did the formal process. Um, and so it's, it's uh, this is a, not as prestigious an honor as that, 
Um, but it is a nice national honor, and it's basically um, just to recognize some work you're doing um, in the community. Like I'm fortunate enough to have a pretty broad practice, so um, there are times when I, I get to help people uh, in in some very difficult situations, and sometimes that gets media attention. Sometimes, um, I, you know, it's it's uh, involvement with a particular community, uh, you know, um, that uh, gets picked up by somebody. So it's hard to say. I mean, you just you just do the best you can, and um, you know, it's it's nice when something like that comes along. Absolutely, and you know, those awards don't come from being uh, paid by large clients uh, hefty sums to represent them. You know, those awards come because of pro bono work, Mm -hmm. just doing things because you're a good person and you genuinely want to help people. And, uh, you know, inevitably it comes back to you. And so uh, I think it's a clear testament to the the kind of lawyer you are. And once again, I don't want to make you you feel uncomfortable, but it's it's awesome to have you. You know, you you touched on one thing um, that you practice in a lot of different areas within immigration and you're 100% right. You know, when I look at your bio and I see the kinds of things that you do, I tend to focus more on, I guess, transactional immigration with applications and things like that. But you not only cover everything from all the different permanent resident applications and temporary applications, uh, but you have that extensive litigation practice. And I think, you know, that's maybe one of the areas that you were alluding to where you have an ability to help people in difficult circumstances. So the uh, immigration appeal work that you do at all, all three divisions, um, of immigration and and uh, the fact you've successfully argued a number of really important cases, including um, spousal sponsorship, which is the topic mm-hmm. we're going to delve into today. And then in addition to the law work that you've done, uh, Ravi has also uh, been a guest lecturer at Seneca College and has also lectured on U.S. consular processing for the New York chapter of AILA, which is the American Immigration Lawyer Association. And of course, you speak regularly at our National Canadian Bar Association conferences. And it was uh, in this past conference in 2016 in Vancouver, where you were on the panel for um, the advanced uh, family class topic, which Mm -hmm. covered, of course, spousal sponsorship. So that is the lead in. But before we do that, I want to ask what I try to ask all my guests. How did you get into immigration? Well, it's funny. Um, I mean, I studied philosophy in undergrad, and then I did a law degree at, at Osgoode Hall um, here in uh, in Ontario. Uh, and it wasn't until towards the end that I really found what I was passionate about. I volunteered at the Poverty Law Clinic at Osgoode, and um, you know, I just had this exposure with helping people. Um, I was the administrative div- uh, administrative law division leader. And then there was also an immigration division leader. So ironically, I wasn't head of that immigration division, but I did volunteer in that division as well. And, um, you know, I just, there was something about the stories and the connections that you made with people. Um, I didn't want to be a lawyer who didn't see people, um, you know, uh, throughout the day or or talk to people much throughout the day. Like some lawyers, uh, as you can imagine, you know, you just, you work on a, a particular file, it could be a civil litigation matter, and you just have that one main client for for many many months um, and you may not have a lot of interaction it may be um you know there's, there's so many different types of law uh that that don't necessarily involve um sort of helping people throughout the day so I like having lots of clients and i like uh I think with some volume you get some expertise uh but it's also important um to sort of not have a practice where you know, people can't call you. So if, if someone calls me, um, I actually pick up the phone myself. I have a big team here, but it's, um, it's that kind of, um, so you don't want to, you want to get too big such that you're not, you know, you're losing touch with the files, but you need to have a certain volume. And, um, but I guess, you know, to answer your question directly, it was, it was this sort of, um, ability to help people that are vulnerable. Um, there are, you know, immigration is, is a very, it shouldn't be, but it's a very complex system. And, the, you know, the, the system in my mind isn't unlike tax law. I mean, tax can be extremely complicated. Immigration's like that. I mean, you have an act, you have regulations, you have um, operational bulletins, you have a manual, uh, no longer publicly available. Um, and they're trying to move everything, as you know, 
uh, into an online format that doesn't have necessarily as much detail. And it changes and, every week. Exactly. <laughs> Unlike tax law. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, immigration law is changing just all the time, you know, uh, even fundamental things like the Citizenship Act. Now, you know, you had one party change it one way and now the liberals are changing it another way. So it's a very, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a field that is constantly requiring a lot of education of oneself. So you look at all this system and then, and then I always tell people, I said, you know, immigration is going to ask you for your email. They're going to ask you for your phone number. And do you think they're going to call you if there's a problem with your file or shoot you a quick email, say, hey, you're missing this document or, you know, um, you know, or whatever? I mean, in my experience, the department is, on the one hand, they say, you know, you're welcome to come to Canada. We want you. Please apply. And on the other hand, they are so bureaucratic about how they process. And it's, it's really unforgiving. So what I like to do is, you know, I have a real passion about, you know, just trying to be as organized as possible. Um, you know, trying to be as on top of my game as I can be, but then taking someone in my office, you know, who I see who's totally bewildered by the process. They may be extremely unsophisticated um, in terms of understanding immigration law, but they may generally just, you know, they may English may be a, you know, not their strongest language or whatever. And you take someone who you know would otherwise be refused or has been refused, then you do an appeal for them, and it's just it's the most gratifying thing that. Um, that you can you can experience because you're using what you know and you're using you know um, your I guess your your knowledge not only of this the, the rules and the system but also your um, you know your familiarity with the people in the immigration department who are who are processing processing these things and you help someone who's vulnerable and then they get to bring in their loved one whether it's a parent or whether it's a spouse or their kids or whatever. And um, it's really, I just can't, I can't sort of emphasize enough how, how truly gratifying it is to be able to do this on a day in, day out basis. Like it feels like volunteer work. It feels like, it feels like, you know, um, and this is my job, right? So it's just, uh, anyway, I, I love what I do and it's, um, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun and, um, you know, and people are very grateful, so. Anyway. That, that is awesome. And, you know, Ravi, I think if I asked that question to the vast majority of us who practice in the area, I would get the exact same answer. Mm-hmm. It's a, that is, you hit the nail right on the head. That's why I do it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had the opportunity to sit in the national firm and, and toil my way away <laughs> on the securities floor. And uh, when it came to, to litigation, it was exactly that. There were no winners. There was just two losers. But with immigration, exactly. you have an opportunity to genuinely make a difference in people's lives. And they're so appreciative of it. And you're right. It's it's almost like volunteer work. And, uh, you know, knowing that... Um, you know, you're taking someone who who is in real desperate circumstances and finding a solution for them. It's you know, it's so rewarding. And you know, I've I'm sure you've had clients like like I who have come into the office with you know, three boxes of, of, of you know, three three pizza uh, pizzas uh, and uh, drinks for the staff and and others of. I remember the one one client uh, cooked up a um, a southern brisket and smoked it <laughs> and 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 drove you know to my office, which is about two hours from calgary and uh, just those kinds of things they 're just so appreciative so it 's just awesome you know you can see when you speak your passion for the area and that you 're doing it for the right reasons and that 's awesome so Let's jump to our topic today, which I indicated before is, is spousal sponsorship, which we're going to focus on. Obviously, we could spend hours and hours talking about all the different ways that you, you help individuals. And and I think really, uh, this is probably step one, and, and I'm going to have to get you back a little bit later to, mm-hmm. to cover some of the other really neat things that you've been working on. But um, essentially, when you think about spousal sponsorship, it's really someone who is, is trying to sponsor a loved one from abroad. And uh, like you indicated, IRCC wants to uh, make it appear so simple that really anyone could do it. Mm-hmm. However, when things go wrong within the application process, they go really wrong. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, when they go really wrong, the best place to have addressed those wrongs was really at the very beginning of the application process before you even file. But people That's don't right. realize that. They don't understand the pitfalls. And it's you know for that reason that I wanted to bring you on to share some insight for our listeners and hopefully enlighten them a little bit more so that, you know, when they or, you know, other counsel obviously listen to this as well, uh, when they're preparing to follow those applications, they, uh, they can make sure that they're, they're doing it 
right the first time and, and also that they have a little bit more insight to govern themselves as they enter into this crazy world of immigration. Mm-hmm. So the first topic that I, or I guess the first question I wanted to ask you is something that I think us as practitioners, we're, we're always pondering over. We can file an application inland or, or we can submit it from outside Canada. So what are some of the things you take into consideration when you're trying to decide which one to do? That's a big loaded question. It's it's a very <laughs> tricky thing. I mean, it's a great, it's an excellent question. I mean, traditionally, I think immigration lawyers who are doing a lot of spousal sponsorships tended to prefer the outland process. It was faster. It, you know, you'd had a, you had a right of appeal. Um, you know, so there were there were certain advantages to it that um, seemed to have dissipated quite a bit because. Uh, now I find in my practice I'm doing mostly inland applications. So just so the listeners understand the difference, there's an outland, what we call in the business here, an outland is, is an application that's um, handled uh, by an office, generally a visa office, so outside the country. Um, but it could be Ottawa, which actually is a designated like a visa office. So it's basically it's, it's handling the file um, uh, at, a, at, a, at a place outside of the country uh, or an office in Canada that's designated as if it was an office outside the country. That's outland. And inland is an office that um, is, is, as it suggests, inside of Canada. So the, um, now it used to be that you couldn't really do uh, like the inland uh, spousal sponsorship or common law uh, category or, or conjugal. Like n- None of those, when you were sponsoring someone romantically close to you, um, that was generally done outside. And, and if you wanted to do it inside, you had to request humanitarian um, exceptions to the, to the normal rule. And then they created this inland class, which allows you to sponsor someone from within the country if you're both here and living here and plan to live here throughout the sponsorship with some limited exceptions. Uh, and then more recently... Uh, the government came up with the um, availability of an open work permit, which they said would come in about a couple of months. And my experience, it's coming more like in five or six, and sometimes, you know, even much longer than that. But so it's it. Um, so the so that's the difference between the two kind of uh, categories. Uh, as I say, the advantage with the inside of Canada or the inland application is that there's this opportunity to get a work permit, which has really been a game changer. Because um, it used to be that you you sort of you know you had an American spouse or something, and they just have to sit on their hands, uh, unless they were eligible for some other type of work permit, they would have to sit on their hands literally for you know over a year until their application was finalized. Well, now, as I say, three or four months later, on in general, on average they can get a work permit and that can really make a huge difference in their ability to sort of financially support themselves. Um, so, But you don't want to do an inland application if you're worried about a refusal which you know will not carry with it a right of appeal. As I say, the outland process, uh, when it's done at a, an office outside or an office inside that's designated as an outside of Canada office, that process, it doesn't give you a work permit. So it's generally for people who are you know, outside of the country, uh, the spouses are married, but they're now living apart. Maybe they can't get a visa. Maybe it's highly unlikely that they would get a visitor visa. And so in that kind of situation, I usually tell clients, you know, I wouldn't even bother spending your money trying to apply for a visitor visa. Uh, you're from a, a high fraud country. Generally, you're from a country where they prefer to have the spousal sponsorship uh, adjudicated first and then uh, they issue your permanent resident visa as opposed to giving you a temporary resident visa. So in that kind of situation, uh, if if there's like a huge age discrepancy or, um, uh, you know, um, if there's there seems to be a lack of compatibility for a number of reasons uh, and let's say the person can get a visa or is here, uh, I would still recommend an outland sponsorship just to have that right of appeal. Uh, but for most people who are outside of the country, um, who require a visa, generally speaking, you know, I would, uh, I would just recommend the Outlands uh, sponsorship because especially in cases where I just don't think they're going to get a visitor visa, uh, that will at least preserve a right of appeal. Uh, and, um, you know, but in terms of processing times, I have to say it's, it's hard to advise clients. And I say, I, I often tell clients that our area of law is very much uh, intertwined with the political realm. I mean, it's, it's you know, Politics and, and politicians really heavily influence our area, and we have a current, you know, our current minister of immigration, John McCallum, 
was the opposition critic uh, for immigration. And one thing he railed against for many, many years was how long it was taking for spouses to get sponsored. And so now that he's the minister, he it's almost like he's still in opposition when you hear him because he says, oh, it's ridiculous. It takes you know a couple of years. Uh, it's too long. We've got to bring this down. So he's allocated through the budget um, you know, many millions of dollars to get this process much more, um, much more quick. And uh, I do think that spousal sponsorships generally, both inland and outland, will start to come, you know, processing times will start to come down. But the, que- the real question is, is it going to come down for our clients right now or is it going to come down for those in the future who may be looking at doing this in a year or so? Like it's just, it's very, it's hard to say. And, um, uh, you know, I just hope that, that, um, that people uh, will not have to wait as long as they've been waiting. You know, and that's a good point because I think, you know, the intertwining of, of politics and, and immigration, I think about the conservatives and um, the question is asked, well, how did we arrive at this spousal open work permit where it's issued so quickly? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe I'll have you explain that, but, uh, you know, the, ultimately the processing times were so high that, mm-hmm. like you alluded to, you had U.S. citizens who were here in Canada twiddling their thumbs, draining away their life savings because they couldn't work until they reached the first stage of approval, where essentially they accepted the relationship was genuine. And when that's taking 18 months or longer, mm-hmm. um, it was really having you know a terrible impact on, on spouses. And so these are not typically contentious you know uh, types of applications, and generally speaking, you know, these types of individuals are, are, you know, they're not coming to Canada for a better life. So there's a good, a good likelihood that the relationship is genuine. Mm-hmm. And uh, like most of our current immigration policy, it was, uh, you know, developed through a public shaming mechanism by CBC Go Public. And mm-hmm. so there's these couples that were uh, complaining to, to CBC and then CBC releases their report on these poor couples. And then lo and behold, a nice Christmas gift I think mm-hmm. it was uh, what two two Christmases ago now, December um, 2014. Yeah. yeah, they they surprise. We will then now issue work permits, essentially as soon as we open the package, which was taking about four months after filing. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you have any other insight than that. But it's it's amazing how yeah how politics drives immigration policy development. Well, yeah, and that I mean we could talk about that all day. I mean that's obviously very prevalent in the temporary foreign worker program, but you know it's it's one of those things where it seemed like the previous government was very much reacting to this and, and um, you know, reacting to stories in the press. There was also a big lobby group that was formed uh, where people were, were really just, you know, enraged by how long it was taking. So, so between that and the, the media reports, sure, I mean, that's, that's, uh, I'm sure that's what influenced them to, to create this category. So, hmm. but, you know, anyway, it's, at least it's, it's a tool that's there now and, uh, and it's, I think, I, it'll be interesting to see, though, because once now that they implemented the the open work permit category for spouses, uh, are they going to focus the resources on the inland spousals, uh, given that they theoretically have this work permit and they're sort of not experiencing the same hardship as those who are, say, sponsoring some spouse from Asia or something, where you know they're they're absolutely separated and and they're they're really struggling every day, missing their you know, really the closest kind of family bond that there is, like their their husband or their wife, right? Um, you know, or if they have children from a previous marriage or whatever and they're separated. So it's it can be, or for, even from their own marriage and they're separated. It's, it can be a really, really horrible um, thing. So I don't, I just, well, I guess we have to see how they'll focus their resources in terms of whether, you know, they'll focus it on outlands or, or both equally. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how everything unfolds. Mm-hmm. So you've done a great job of setting the stage for the types of uh, you know applications that can be filed inland or outland. Um, generally speaking, there's really only one question that the government asks, and that's whether or not uh, an applic- you know a relationship is genuine. So this concept of of bad faith marriages, uh, maybe you can just touch it a little bit on. Um, things that people need to be aware of when it comes to this assessment process? Sure. Well, um, there's uh, when it comes to citizens, for instance, um, you know, sometimes you have an application and as, a, as an immigration lawyer who's used to dealing with, you know, situations where um, the genuineness is generally the issue, they may not 
be as aware of um, of the case where it's a Canadian citizen who's residing abroad. So oftentimes what happens is you have someone here and they're sponsoring someone that's in some other country. And, uh, you know, that's sort of the, 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 the sort of normal paradigm. But there are unusual, less well, less usual situations where the Canadian is living outside of the country and they've married and they have kids or whatever. Um, and in that kind of a situation, uh, you know, they're not, the government's not so focused on genuineness. If there's, if there's, you know, ample evidence that they, you know, they have children, they've, they've been living together for many years, um, they're not going to really have the focus on the genuineness. The focus will instead be on whether they actually intend to live in Canada because the government doesn't want to just give permanent resident status to this, to the, you know, to the foreigner who's living with the Canadian abroad uh, because once they do that, that person can just indefinitely renew their permanent resident card uh, because, of course, the test for renewing it is whether or not you've, um, you've either lived here for two years in Canada out of five or whether you've accompanied a Canadian citizen abroad. So given that they would be accompanying a Canadian citizen abroad for basically, instead of two out of five, basically five out of five, so every year they'd be able to get a new PR card and so the, in, in perpetuity, basically, they'd, they'd be uh, permanent residents even though... Um, you know, they, they've only ever lived outside the country. So the government wants to avoid that and they want to make sure that if they're going to give permanent residence to the spouse of the Canadian citizen where both the couple are living abroad, then they have to be sure that that person is actually coming to Canada. So all of my focus ends up turning to, to be on that issue. Um, so, Let, let's let's delve into that just a little yeah. bit then. So if you're advising a client and they are living abroad, um, mm-hmm. what kind of things do you do you you know advise them on on how to show that they truly have an intention of you know returning to Canada and living there when sure. you know their lives are abroad right now? Well, have they looked for jobs? Do they have a job offer? Do they uh, have they contacted real estate agents? Um, have they? Uh, you know, has the Canadian, if the other one can't come, uh, have they done an exploratory visit where they've, you know, um, potentially even bought a house? Has the applicant, who is the foreigner, have they resigned from their post? Uh, You know, there's, I mean, depending on the visa post, some countries are a bit more flexible than others. Other, some visa posts want to see real, concrete, hard evidence that uh, they've severed ties to the, the country they're living in. And it's hard to do, right? Because when do you do that? Do you do that up front or do you do that when you first apply or do you do it sort of, um, you know, once it's been in process a while and you start to get these inquiries about ties and about whether or not um, the intention is really there to come to Canada, do at, the, at that point, do you send in the letter saying, here's my resignation letter, I'm really serious about this. So what I do is, I mean, I just sort of, it's all fact-specific, it's all dependent on the particular case and what the clients are able to, to give us. Um, but those are the things I look for in terms of housing, in terms of severing job ties, uh, in terms of finding job opportunities here. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, I, I recall a circumstance of, of one of my colleagues, past colleagues, uh, where there was an oil and gas worker who had lived and worked in, in Moscow for, oh, for years. And of course, married a, um, a Russian a Russian lady and they had a child and he had property in Canada. He had his home. He mm-hmm. spent 40% of his time in Canada and 60% of his time in Russia just with his work schedule and they refused. <laughs> <laughs> they refused the application. Unbelievable. And, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, the, how they dealt with it, it's a whole different story. But well, it's that, a good appeal. <laughs> yeah, but that's, you know, that's exactly the uh, the volatility of this process. And people who aren't aware of these things, um, you know, they get burned. They do get burned. I mean, there's another situation, too, where, um, so generally for most cases, as I say, apart from the one where the citizens are residing abroad, they look at the genuineness of the marriage, and they also require that it not have been entered primarily for immigration. So we run into this. I mean, when this first came out, uh, they basically turned it into uh, a test requiring that both of these things um, be satisfied, whereas before, you only had to satisfy one or the other. So even if they thought that the marriage was initially entered into out of convenience because the person was running out of status here in Canada or whatever, and they had a quickie marriage at City Hall. Um, if it was able to be shown 
that, you know what, this, this is actually a real deal now. Like, I mean, they have kids together. They've been here. You know, it's, it, it may have started out as sort of um, a frantic attempt to, you know, to sort of get status in Canada. Maybe they were genuinely were boyfriend and girlfriend, let's say. Um, but because the person all of a sudden was subject to a removal order or they lost their refugee claim, all of a sudden they were faced with the reality of being separated. And they said, oh, we better get married then because we really want to, um, you know, we want to get uh, immigration status through this category. Um, we love each other, but we weren't really planning on getting married. But hey, let's let's do it anyway. And then down the road, it's quite obvious it's a genuine marriage. Well, under the old test, the, that situation, that couple was fine. Well, now the law is that you have to satisfy the government both that it's genuine and that at the time that the marriage was entered into, it wasn't primarily for an immigration purpose. Now, the way I deal with this is that, you know, uh, let's say you have someone, again, who's a failed refugee or what have you. Uh, I, I look at, um, I focus on the word primarily, okay? Because, I mean, let's say genuineness is there and it's not so much of a hurdle. If the couple um, seems to have potentially entered into this marriage to get some kind of immigration benefit, um, that could be one factor that uh, led them to get married. But I say, well, I ask them questions. I look at the file. I look at the facts. And I say, well, listen, isn't it interesting? Uh, the immigration department wants to say that the primary reason was that uh, they wanted an immigration benefit. But let's look at this. Let's look at their cultural compatibility. Let's look at their educational compatibility. Let's look at their age compatibility. Let's look at their social background compatibility. Let's look at their religious compatibility. If all those things are there, then how can the immigration department argue that the primary primary reason that they married was this immigration benefit. I can say, look, it was a factor. For sure, they didn't want to be away from each other. But was it the primary factor? Did this person marry someone completely and utterly outside of um, you know, their age and, and religion and education? Now, again, these are stereotypes, and it's, it's unfortunate that I have to think in this way, but I have to think in this way, because even though we're a multicultural country and we have all kinds of couples that get together that are, seem totally different at times, um, you know, the immigration department, uh, especially when it comes to certain, uh, you know, visa offices, uh, they'll look at these kinds of compatibilities. So, uh, so I have to use it in our advantage when I can. And, uh, and when they're compatible in every way, except for the fact that, um, you know, one had status and, 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 uh, and one was a Canadian, you know, this is where I focus on the word primarily. So that's, that's when it, so, so, so it, these are the sort of, sort of things that we look at when we're thinking about, um, the, 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 I see it as three tests, genuineness, whether it's mer- entered into primarily for an immigration benefit, and also the intention issue when it comes to citizens who are living abroad. Awesome. That's great insight. And realistically, uh, I don't recall reading any of that within the guide to, <laughs> to, to completing the application forms. And so thanks so much. That's, that's really helpful. Okay. So we know that you can file your application, you can think you've done everything right, and it can end up in a refusal. Mm-hmm. So we've got two different types of applications, and, and maybe we can talk about each of them, inland versus outland. What options do you have available? In terms of filing it? In terms of, uh, you know, appealing a Sorry, refusal. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. So, I mean, well, I mean, that's the tricky thing. In terms of... Um, and inland, then the only option you have is to go to federal court. But again, you know, when you're looking at, sometimes people think, say, well, uh, we have a real relationship. I don't understand why this was refused. If, if a refusal is brought to me, I, I have to study it in terms of seeing whether the officer made a procedural error. Because in federal court, you know, um, we're looking at things like, did the officer give the person an opportunity to respond? Did they rely on a poison pen letter, the extrinsic evidence, and not give the person the chance to disabuse the officer of that? Excuse me, was, um, was there, you know, was there some other error, administrative law error, natural justice uh, error that was made? Um, in that kind of situation, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with an inland, you've, you've, you basically are, are limited in your appeal to a procedural uh, error and often, you know, many times there may not be a procedural error. I may not agree with that decision, but there's not a procedural error, so you can't get to um, to federal court if there's real no if there's no identifiable procedural error. Whereas when you file the case outside of the country or at an outland application, 
you know, again, the visa office, it could be Ottawa, that's designated as an outside of Canada application. Let's say for Americans who are often handled through Ottawa um, and they're filing it um, outland. In those situations, you do have a right, an automatic right, to uh, go to the Immigration Refugee Board. So this is a tribunal. It's, um, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for you to have a hearing and it's called a de novo uh, hearing. So um, uh, the federal court case in Kalon, federal court of appeal case in Kalon, uh, establishes that it's it's a uh, it's a hearing de novo, which means that it's it's uh, it's it's in the broadest sense. You can bring in new evidence. Uh, the officer, um, you know, uh, his his or her opinion or his or her decision is substituted. So, so the board member who's hearing the case is looking at the case as it is today. So even if the visa officer was correct at the time, uh, didn't really make an error in the sense that, you know, the evidence available at the time suggested that it, it you know, it, it didn't, it didn't discharge the burden that the, um, the applicant had on a balance of probabilities, because that's the test. It's not beyond reasonable doubt, but balance of probabilities. If you go to uh, the Immigration and Refugee Board at the Appeal Division, uh, and uh, you're able to establish on a balance of probabilities at that time that, you know, um, it's a genuine marriage, not entered primarily for immigration. And again, you th- situations may change. They may have a child at that time. They may have. There may be multiple of other factors that are really in their favor. They may have visited the person in their home country, you know, five times since the refusal. Uh, so they may have copious uh, amounts of other types of evidence, phone calls, etc., uh, affidavits from friends. You know, all that fresh evidence uh, can be looked at. And a lot of people are surprised about that. They think an appeal means that you can only appeal based on what was before the officer at the time, and that's not true. It's a totally fresh case. And so, um, so that's, that's the remedy when, you come, comes, when it comes to an outland application. You actually have a de novo hearing uh, that you can, you can engage in. Now, believe it or not, there are times when uh, I had a case, which was a shocking case, where there was um, I alleged bias. I actually said that the, the board member, on the record, displayed bias, which is a very, very unusual thing to have happen. Uh, but in that case, the, the, the board member said, well, it's a, there were Muslim clients, and the board member said, I just don't think that it makes any sense that they wouldn't have dated and gotten together and had some kind of a you know, um, relationship prior to agreeing to get married. And I, I basically said, well, listen, that's bias because that's, that's fundamentally misunderstanding what a pure arranged marriage is. And, I mean, and they exist in this world. Arranged marriages exist where it's arranged by family members and the bride and groom have very little contact beforehand. And so that case went to the federal court and the federal court judge said, I agree with you. Uh, that is exactly what bias is. And he sent it back to the um, Immigration Refugee Board, and then we won that case at the Immigration Refugee Board. So, so sometimes litigation, very rarely, it can involve a situation where you're going from the tribunal level to the federal court and then back to the tribunal uh, and then back to the visa office for ultimate uh, decision. Right, and so that was one of the things I was going to ask you. So when you are successful with your appeal, mm-hmm. uh, then it's not as if you're successful with your application and... Hooray! Your, you know, the permanent resident visa is granted. Mm, that's correct. It has to go back to the visa office, and the visa office has to make sure the medicals are up to date and the police clearances and security clearances are in. Generally speaking, um, once you've won your appeal, generally speaking, they will uh, they'll approve it. Ultimately, it's just a question of timing. So uh, I know that there's was a pilot that ended up being more permanent, where it was very straightforward. Uh, type cases would be sent, um, you know, to an inside of Canada office. But uh, sometimes the issues are complex and they'll send it back to the visa office and uh, the visa office will have to issue the visa. And sometimes that can take many, many months to the to great frustration of the couple who've won after, you know, because if you think about it, and maybe they waited a year and a half to get a decision. Maybe uh, it took two years to get to the Immigration Refugee Board and then they won at the Immigration Refugee Board uh, so they're already out, you know, three plus years of their life, and then to wait another six months or a year, um, it really feels egregious. So this is an area where they need to really clean it up because um, the visa officers are sometimes refusing a little too easily, and then uh, the couples really, you know, they're really suffering uh, as they as they seek justice. That's great. 
And, you know, when you think about it, it just goes to show how important it is to get it right the first time. Exactly. uh, I've had clients who've come in and they've submitted uh, an application and um, on their own. And then they've gotten this fairness letter back that says, please provide all these extra documents. And the reality is they said, well, our friends told us just to submit it. And we didn't need to worry about providing a lot of extra documentation because they'll, they'll tell us what to provide. (laughs) 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 So uh, needless to say, uh, I, I, I tried to clarify with them that that wasn't the best strategy. (laughs) And, uh, and so if, if um, Ravi, if I could ask you, to give the listeners one tip uh, in in filing a spousal sponsorship. Maybe this is a little bit too difficult and and putting you on the spot, but if you could give people one tip just to take into consideration when they're filing these applications, what would it be? Well, I would say um, more rather than less in terms of your evidence. You know, some people, as you say, they they put in very little evidence. Uh, I tend to... to, um, you know, to to go overboard, and uh, what I'll do is I'll I'll get you know pictures uh, documenting their life together. Uh, I'll um, we'll write down below the pictures. We'll we'll photocopy them. We'll keep the originals, and we'll we'll write down what's happening uh, in those pictures. Who's there? What kind of people are there? Are they going to weddings together? I mean, basically, what they're trying to see is, and they're really more focused not on the sponsor but on the applicant. So the person applying for immigration. That's the focus. Is the, was the wedding in that person's hometown? Because what you're trying to see is, have you outed yourself to the world as marrying this Canadian or, or permanent resident? Does your community know? Because one of the hallmarks of a fake marriage is they hide it from the people that are close to them. So, you know, I would make sure, I mean, I'd, I'd actually, you know, I have a number of tips, I'm sorry, but it'd be, you know, it'd be basically try to hire counsel before you get married so that we can advise you on what to do. It's not just a matter of, you know, you get married and you come to a lawyer and say, okay, um, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to get in early here and I want you to, to do this application properly. I would say go back farther before you get married. We can tell you things like, you know what? It's quite important that your parents from both sides go and that all your siblings go. And you'd be surprised how many times people don't plan for that to happen. But, you know, when you're looking at what a real marriage is, it just makes common sense. Your siblings and your parents should go. And then a lot of people, you know, especially from visa-requiring countries, they want to kickstart the process by getting a court marriage first. And I say to them, I understand why you want to do that. Because culturally, once you're married, you want your bride or your groom, they're, they're supposed to live together. Uh, you know, and they, they want to, you know, have a year go by by kickstarting it by just doing a court marriage. And they don't even consummate the marriage. There's no real ceremonies. Important people didn't show up. And they just want to get the paperwork done. But of course, the immigration department's looking at you know, the paperwork that was submitted, um, you know, uh, after the court marriage, and they're saying, well, does this pass the smell test of a real marriage? And the, and the answer is often no. So, so it's very important that they understand the forms are designed to, to trick them up. Um, it's uh, to trip them up, rather. It's very important that they uh, understand that, you know, the, the, not only the questions, but, you know, the types of evidence that they provide, you know, it should, it should make sense. It shouldn't be over the top. Sometimes I see people, you know, from from very conservative cultures that are presenting pictures in bed together, and it's it's very interesting. It's fascinating for me because I've I've come from a mixed racial background, and uh, my father was from India, but I was born here, and my mom's American, and she's not Indian at all. And for me to sort of I can I feel like I can kind of sometimes understand, particularly with the South Asian clients where they're trying to present evidence that they think the officers want to see, right? And it's sort of, and it's, 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 it's sort of bizarre kind of situation where they, they would never present it otherwise. And, then, and the officers are looking at it going, you know, they're not so slow, right? These officers are bright and they're sort of looking at it going, this is, you know, what, are, what am I being presented with? This is obviously <laughs> a staged photograph. And this is not something they would normally do. And yet, at the heart of it, at the end of it, at the bottom of it, it's actually a genuine marriage. So, so it's sort of a, you know, sometimes you find yourself saving them from themselves. Um, but anyway, those are the, the, I guess it wasn't one tip, but no. those, those are my tips. You know what, that, that, in all honesty, Ravi, that, that is awesome. Like uh, th- this insight is so helpful. For, for I know other counsel even that that maybe don't file as uh, as many spousal sponsorships as uh, as um, you know as as you have and uh, who don't have that same level of experience these are things that like I said are not 
listed or explained in the guide. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this helpful guide that the government provides that says you don't need to hire a representative and you can do it on your own. And uh, this is exactly where people run into problems. But this is this is wonderful. So I think basically what you've done is you've set yourself up <laughs> to anyone who's listening here <laughs> who who has got an issue that's a little bit tricky, her thinking, boy, I need to I need to hire someone who knows what they're doing. <laughs> and uh, of course us as as um as lawyers, we can never hold out that we're experts in any field whatsoever. But clearly you have developed uh, uh, a lot of experience um, that uh, you then use to enhance the services that you offer to your clients. And so that's just wonderful. So I want to thank you so very, very much for being on the podcast with me today. Um, it was, it was great. Like I think of, Mark, of, of I have to you've... say something, what you're yeah. doing, I have to commend you for this series. I mean, there's so much ignorance out there. The immigration department doesn't see it as a role as educating the public. And you have taken that on and I commend you for this. It's wonderful. Getting the knowledge out there is so critical. It will save heartache and hardship for for many, many people, and it's because of what you're doing. So thank you very much for this initiative. Well, I appreciate that. Now, before we go, um, I know that people are going to be asking me, so how can people find you if, uh, <laughs> if they're trying to track you down? Well, if they What's Google the my name, way? they're either going to find me or they're going to find an actor. <laughs> there's, a, there's a Toronto actor who's got the exact same name as me. And uh, people often call me and say, oh, I didn't know you did some acting on the side. And I finally <laughs> met the guy. And uh, our parents actually knew each other because the Jane community is actually a small one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they could Google me. Uh, it's Ravi Jane, R-A-V-I, last name J-A-I-N. If they put immigration lawyer, I'm sure they'd find me. Uh, they could also go to uh, the firm website. But uh, I think just Googling is fine. And they could email me. It's ravij at gans.com. So R-A-V-I-J at uh, gans, G as in George, A as in Andrew, N as in Norman, D as in David, S as in Sam.com. Perfect. And call me. I've, uh, as I said earlier, uh, I pick up the phone myself. That's awesome. And I'll make sure to put all of your contact information in the show notes to uh, to this podcast. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Ravi. I really appreciate the time that you that you took and and um, yeah, just excellent insight. Much appreciated. A pleasure. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Well, it's pretty easy to see why I was so impressed with Ravi, and it was so gracious of him to come on the podcast and share the insight that he did regarding spousal sponsorships. And really, that's the whole point of this Canadian Immigration Podcast is to show the world the caliber of immigration lawyers that are out there who genuinely care about people and take the time to become knowledgeable and really, without saying it, just develop a huge level of expertise in particular areas of immigration. And Ravi has definitely set the bar high for all of us, but in reality, he's actually helped all of us to raise our bar, if you will, when it comes to the level of, uh, if we're an immigration lawyer, the, we- the level of uh, practice and service that we can offer to our clients, just being able to glean the knowledge and experience that uh, Ravi has shared with us today. And that's the purpose of the podcast. Um, all of you listeners, whether you're immigration lawyers, consultants, whether you're individuals out there even, the information that, that we hope to have on this podcast is meant to be useful. It's meant to be uh, helpful as you're filing your own application, as you're filing applications for clients, just to make us all a whole lot better. Because as I indicated in our last podcast, when I was trying to give you a little bit of an overview as to what my intentions were and my hopes for this podcast, the government has made it extremely difficult to navigate this complex web that we know as the Canadian immigration system. And with very few places to turn, this podcast, I want to be known as a place where people can go to get the most awesome information, if that's even a proper phrase, but just where people come and knock it out of the park, where they share insight that you're not going to get anywhere else. And I hope that you like it. I hope that you appreciate it. I hope that you know the time that's put in by these lawyers, people reward them by calling them and that their practices get busier and that the, the lawyers who really practice in in the the shadows almost not the shadows but in the background who don't seek fanfare who don't try to you know put up the big billboard on uh you know on on the the side of the road who just go about quietly doing phenomenal work i want to showcase them and ravi is definitely one of them and the 
other guests that I have coming on here that have been scheduled, the podcast that I've already done, these are all exceptional people that I consider my friends. Well, that does it for another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Um, I would encourage you to share it with anyone you think might be interested. Please go to iTunes and subscribe. Leave comments, leave reviews, because people that are just skimming over it will probably look at it and say, oh, how boring, Canadian Immigration Podcast, when reality, the information in here is awesome. And the speakers are just, just super high caliber. So leave a review. Also, um, you can go to the Canadian Immigration Podcast website and, uh, subscri- and subscribe there to the mailing list and you'll be notified when new episodes are released. And I can tell you that they're coming fast and furious. Uh, so I'm amazed at how great a response I've received from invitations that I've sent out and lawyers are anxious to get on and share their knowledge and it is just going to be to the benefit of everybody that's listening to this podcast. So this is Mark Holthy, your host, signing off, and I wish you all the best as you attempt to navigate this complex world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. Canadian Immigration Park.